Welcome to another episode of Bright Headed Publishing Patio Book Book Club. I am your host, Kelly Morgan. I'm excited today to bring you an author who is going to share his journey and how he overcame depression. Uh, his name is Stephen D. Edwards, and he began writing while he was in high school, but then he lost the passion for it in his late 20s. After gaining freedom, from a long-term depression, he wrote a memoir titled The Branch and the Vine to celebrate that victory and to help those who suffer gain freedom from the darkness in which he suffered. With his passion for writing reignited, he now writes Christian short stories and novels that encourage and uplift in ways that nonfiction cannot do. Please welcome to the book club, Stephen D. Edwards. Stephen, thank you for joining us today on the Patio Book Book Club. How are you? I'm great. I'm doing fantastic. Well, that is fantastic. I am excited for you to uh, jump into your book. But before we get started, I just want you to kind of introduce yourself to the listeners and kind of tell us about the journey. And I know the journey is how the book was written. So I won't interrupt anymore. So you can just kind of go into it. I don't want to interrupt you. So I'm, I'm sure the listeners are interested. I'm interested. Please tell us how all of this came about. Well, uh, thank you for tuning in, everybody. And thank you, Kelly Morgan, not not only for having me on your broad, bright-headed publishing podcast, um, but for your heart to help uh, authors um, like me reach readers. Uh, I'm honored and I'm blessed. Uh, Kelly mentioned my book briefly earlier, um, The Branch and the Vine, which is my memoir uh, about my my uh, battle and victory over depression. I wrote it for believers in Jesus who suffer from depression. I am currently working on a non-Christian version of this book to be titled The Joy at the End of the Tunnel. Everything I will share is in both of these books. Uh, I will share about three three of the keys that led to freedom from depression. Those keys are forgiveness, reconciling relationships, and gratitude. Uh, actually, there's four. Healthy boundaries are also important. So, but first, I'll share my story with you. I'm excited to share this with you, and I hope you find it helpful. Of course, there's a lot more information in my books on the subject of depression. So that's not who I am now. I am the eldest of three siblings, born and raised in South, South, I keep saying South America, but it's Latin America, of British parents who loved us and did their best as parents. We moved every two to four years. It's hard to pinpoint the cause of my depression because of the knock-on effect of my experience. However, one significant event took place while I was in grade one. The teacher had each student stand up individually to count to 100, once per day until achieved. When I did trip on a number, the teacher would stop me and tell me to sit down and try again the next day. 
My classmates jeered and mocked me, but as unbearable as that was, the teacher's lack of grace was worse. I have noticed that even these days, I have a tendency to trip over my words while trying to perform that same feat. I can't remember what the teacher really looked like, but her tone of voice telling me to sit down became terrifying. I remember feeling traumatized that I sometimes forgot to go back to class after lunch or recess. It was a serious hit to my self-esteem and confidence. I didn't tell my parents about this issue. In fact, writing this book basically told them about it. But soon after that, fights with my brothers became quite frequent. Because of the quarreling with my brothers, my brother, my parents decided to send me to a military boarding school when I was 11. By the time I was in high school, I began to be, believe in some lies about myself. I'm not good at anything. I have no talent. I am not smart. I'm not manly or courageous. I have no future. Nobody can forgive what I've done. I'll never change. I need to fix these problems on my own. Years later, as an adult, I was deep into an addiction that kept me self-isolating and I couldn't escape the chains of shame and self-condemnation. The chains that imprisoned me became a new normal, a comfort zone. If depression hadn't set in already, it wasn't far behind. I had many short, broken relationships. Dating life seemed normal, but it never reached any level of beauty or by, by any standard. Even my first marriage was short-lived at 18 months. Then I hit rock bottom in my addiction and I started a 12-step recovery program. I admitted that I had a problem. I was powerless. With my recovery in progress, I began to help others through their own addictions. But even after addiction stopped, depression continued. By that time, I wanted to provide better for my new family. So I took on a door-to-door -door sales job on commission. After about a hundred days of door knocking and very few sales, negative self-talk started to take me back to my old me, believing lies again. This time the lies were, I'm no good to my wife and son. I'm not a worthy husband or father. I'm a liability to them. I didn't want to live. I even made plans to end my life, but God intervened for me and thwarted the plans. A year later, Jesus gave me freedom from depression. So here's the first key, healthy boundaries. Many of the factors that contributed to, to depression in my life was the lack of healthy boundaries in my life. Without boundaries in our lives, we live in total chaos. Even for those of us who don't believe in God or Jesus, we need to filter everything through the two commandments that Jesus gave us that he says were most important. 
because they set boundaries straight. Regardless of where or in whom you have our faith is, it is easy in, in ideological terms to say that if any everyone in the world were to love one another, it would be a better place. We need six main types of boundaries. Physical, material, emotional, mental, not enabling others, and protecting ourselves. We also need boundaries to protect our, us from ourselves. We need to remember that not everything is beneficial in our lives, even when there is pleasure in them. The reasons for that are that something in which we find pleasure may also cause harm to another or even to ourselves. The consequences are where it gets difficult. How do we give ourselves a consequence for violating a boundary? Discipline. I don't mean that we should discipline ourselves, but that whatever we have predecided for consequences, we need to follow through or the purpose of these boundaries will be null. As I bring up boundaries for ourselves, I need to mention that boundaries for family can differ from those for family, for friends. However, the values should be the same. For example, I have a boundary that I cannot visit a home while a woman or women are present without spouses or other male company. Therefore, my boundary for women other than my wife, is that they should not visit me at my home while my wife is not home. The reasons are obvious. If I was not married, the boundary would be the same because of my Christian values. Physical boundaries. In my opinion, physical boundaries are the easiest to understand and set and enforce. Therefore, it is a good place to start. We need to set our minds on where the limits of our physical space are, such that when someone crosses them, we can set the boundaries and set the expectation for, for the consequences of violations. There was a time when I was walking downtown during my lunchtime, and I bumped into an acquaintance from work with whom I rarely ever spoke. The bump was hard enough that I was pushed back. As she pushed me aside, she said, look where you're going. And she was out of sight before I could utter a word of apology. That was 20 years ago, and I hadn't given it much thought until I started writing on this subject in this book. Now I wonder, if she could see that I wasn't looking where I was going, why didn't she why did she let me crash into her personally if someone appears a little lost the person might not be looking at the path ahead of, of them and might be moving very slowly thus wouldn't a bump be more the fault of the person who was lost not lost did she bump into me just to tell me to look where i was going who was at fault both of us. I should have been looking where I was going. But I believe she should also have been looking out for people, as we all should, who are unknowingly going to cross our path. 
After all, defensive driving courses recommend doing the same thing because we would rather avoid the hassle of an accident than present ourselves to the other driver just to have the opportunity to say that we are in the right. I mentioned we need to balance all of this with our love of God and ourselves. By that I mean what happened was in the past before my co-worker said a single word. While not looking where I was going might have been a little rude, it was an honest mistake as well. She should not have blurted out so rudely to look where I was going and run off. It would have been much better to stop and ask if everything was okay and then calmly say, you should be looking where you're going. The space allotted to us is another opportunity to set a phys personal physical boundary. These areas are bedrooms, offices, homes, and so forth. We need to set our minds on our boundaries for these places. Again, whenever someone breaks these boundaries, we need to remain calm and communicate our desire for the space to be left as it is with no one entering this space, even if we are not there. It might go something like that, like this. Hi, excuse me, Joe. This is my office. You can leave me a note if I'm not here, but this is not a place for other people to hang around. I need to maintain a friend, friendly relationship at work. By abusing others' boundaries will lead us in the wrong direction. Or, Billy, you need to stay out of my bedroom. If you go in there again, I will have to stop your computer privileges. By calmly setting our boundaries and stating them, in these examples, we clearly define our limits to others and explain the consequence of violations. What physical boundaries do we need for self-protection? We need to stay away from immoral behavior, whether sexual, drugs, criminal, and anything else that can lead us astray from our priorities. My personal priorities have to do with my faith and have the same source. Not only do these types of behavior not please God, they please the enemy. They also cause uh, our branch to snap off the vine. Material boundaries. This area can be quite personal in that what is okay with me might not be okay with friends and family. However, some of this is obvious. We should not steal from organizations or others and vice versa. Thus, the boundaries in this area have more to do with things that happen to our property. For example, I do expect that if I lend a, per a book or a tool to someone for that person to return it, but I also expect to get it back in working order. I don't expect ripped pages in the book and I expect to be able to use the tool as I did before. Of course, people should not be taking things from others without asking permission or damaging them when borrowed. The question for all of us, what is the consequence for violation? Will we remain friends? For me, the answer is yes. 
However, I might not be so generous about lending things to that friend again. Again, filtered through the greatest commandments, I forgive. But I will not forget attempts to burn bridges. In the category of self-protection, I do not purchase things I do not actually want to use or buy impulsively as I did in the past. I try to be a good steward of my finances. Let's keep in mind that this does not mean we should save all our money. On the other hand, it does not mean we should give so much to charity that we live paycheck to paycheck as a result. It means we should make wise decisions with our finances. Emotional. It probably goes without saying that we should not provoke others to anger as it would not fit the greatest commandments. I might add that provoking the anger of strangers everywhere we meet is like setting ourselves on fire with gasoline. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we should never be angry. There are times when we should be angry. For example, if someone violated one of my boundaries, I should be angry. Otherwise, I would have no incentive to enforce the consequence. Furthermore, if I became angry, aware that someone violated a friend's boundaries, I would not be inciting anger by telling my friend about the violation. Anger is normal when boundaries are violated. However, we still need to react calmly. Mental boundaries. I suspect that many people might question whether mental mental abuse and emotional abuse are the same thing. I would agree that they're similar. So let's look at the difference. Telling someone emphatically that the weather is great today and the sky is blue all day while the other person is next to us all day, when in fact it is overcast, is mental abuse. On the other hand, intentionally breaking someone's boundary just to provoke anger is emotional abuse. I was once certain that no one can endure mental abuse, but people do, and I did. I would not tolerate such behavior now, and the consequences would be severe. When I did endure the mental abuse of a girlfriend who twisted many of my words into other meanings, I had believed I had to stay. This goes back to the decision of what our boundaries are. I had none in those days. What the consequences are, and following through with those consequences, is important. The person I am today would not put up with such abuse and leave with after a single warning, accepting that most people don't change that easily, I would likely have to leave. Enabling others. There's a fine line between helping and enabling the immoral immoral behavior of others. Some of us refuse to set boundaries on helping others merely because we want to help them, those we love, avoid harm. However, if the harm we are helping them avoid is the consequence of wrongdoing, 
there is greater harm to come. Therefore, when we interfere with the natural consequences of poor choices in order to protect them, this is the opposite of protection and love. In our love, we cannot share in or enable sin or wrongdoing. Love does not participate in or enable immoral behavior. Although people don't like being told what to do, and we cannot control what they do, we still need to tell them uh, that we love that we love them, but that they are doing wrong. However, we also need to set a boundary to keep ourselves from repeatedly reminding them of their wrongs. Once we have told them, we have done our job and it's up to them. If we have difficulty with this boundary or the lack of it, we also take on the shame associated with the wrongdoings the other person commits. Sometimes we can even be held legally responsible for crimes committed by that person as we might be found to have abetted the crimes, the wrongdoings. We can say no. When someone asks us to get involved in a project, we need to evaluate how much we have already on our plate. If we say yes while the plate is already full, we will burn out. If the project is work-related, we need to have the courage to tell our boss that we cannot take it on or ask for help with other responsibilities. Many times it feels bad to turn down opportunities to do good things, but how good would it be for us to say yes to every good chance to bless others, but fail to fulfill the promise to bless? Not good at all. When we do this, we diminish our ability to do the, our best in the blessings because we burn out. At the very least, we don't put out our full effort into the attempt to bless. Yes, it is better to give than to receive. However, it is best to give our full effort into that giving. So the next key, make amends and forgive. There's a reason that holding on to resentments is also called bitterness. It's not only that we appear bitter from the outside, our insides are bitter as well. I don't know a better way to back up the idea that there's no room for bitterness and regret in our lives than this quote. It's old, but it's to the point. You might as well swallow a dose of Prusik acid in two gulps and think to protect yourself by saying, this one is for Robespierre and this one is for the Bristol murderer. You will hardly have any doubt as to who will receive the benefit of the poison. Emmett Fox. My experience has been that each act of forgiveness gives me, makes me stronger and more willing to forgive. Regret can haunt us, causing stress. Resentment and regret around the globe get in the way of world peace and they obstruct our personal peace through psychological and physiological issues. Therefore, we need to look at what it means to forgive because it's a difficult step to take for many people.
The Oxford English Dictionary's first definition of forgive is to stop feeling angry with someone who has done something to harm or annoy or upset us. Stop feeling angry with yourself. However, most people believe that when we forgive a wrong, we condone the behavior. The wrong committed against us can seem like the worst thing to happen to anyone. We might ask ourselves, how can I forgive that? However, the definitions above don't mention letting the offender get off the hook at all. And actually, doing that isn't what's required. If that was part of the definition, there would be a lineup at the police station or courts to withdraw charges. We wouldn't need prisons. Societies around the world would look quite different. But I'm not suggesting a societal change or a prison reform. Condoning behavior when someone hurts us is simply not part of the process of forgiving. Those of us who do not believe in God, the God of the Bible, will require faith in this process in order to move forward with forgiving those who have harmed them. Let's keep this in mind, that I'm not suggesting that non-believers develop a faith in God overnight. It's just faith that because it works for me and others, it will work for them as well. Forgiving is unique to each one of us. It may be easier to forgive ourselves than others, or it might be easier the other way around. But if we find it difficult to forgive ourselves, we will still cause ourselves the same kind of pain as if we have difficulty forgiving others. After forgiving those who hurt us, we find ourselves in need of restoring relationships. These relationships can be with people to whom we owe amends or whom we have just forgiven. Reconciliation of our important relationships is certainly possible. In my book, I have paraphrased seven methodical steps for restoring relationships from Rick Warren's purpose-driven life. What on earth am I here for? When I followed these steps myself, they worked every time. I recommend reading the book for Warren's description of these steps. Our empowering way to look at the process of reconciliation of a relationship is that the issue we attempt to resolve is actually in the past. If both parties are able to see this, forgiving each other will fuel a new relationship that replaces the old one. The reason for this is that two formerly broken people will have become whole as new persons after healing. Gratitude. This was probably my favorite key. Gratitude is a powerful force that we can harness. It's not like the power of an internal combustion engine harnessing the power of fuel burning fuel, but it is far less complicated. Gratitude gave me a wonderful gift, joy. I used to think there was no purpose in gratitude if I couldn't tell anyone about it. 
but just being thankful is enough. Think of it like having optimism, which is like a characteristic we adopt to replace negativity. Gratitude is an attitude. I was depressed for 35 years. Healing came as a complete surprise to me because I had long accepted the lie that depression was my destiny. The truth revealed itself by way of negative self-talk that led me to make plans for suicide. The plan was long-term as I thought I should take care of my debts first by declaring bankruptcy, then following through with the process. However, the gratitude that I had already cultivated in myself brought me back to sanity a few days later after I concocted the plan and prompted me to pray. I did pray for that plan to end. It did, but depression hadn't left yet. Depression left a year later after I committed myself to growing at the attitude of gratitude, being grateful for everything I have every day. To cultivate this attitude, I have done a few different things. It takes some effort to do this, so starting small works best. However, we need to prepare for this exercise to become large. The first of these things is to write down the things for which I'm grateful every day. The key to this is to actually write it down on paper or use our computers because it will mean more to us. For most of us, these things are the roof over our heads, the food we have in our pantries, and the clothes we wear. To grow the gratitude further, we need to start thinking of different things to add to the gratitude list we've started. These things might be the people in our lives, our employment, our mentors, partners, and so on. One way to build up the gratitude in our hearts is to start a seven-day gratitude challenge on social media and challenge a friend on each day. Over the period of the challenge, we post 21 distinct things for which we are grateful. This was actually the first gratitude exercise I tried. I surprised myself because I didn't think I had 21 things to be grateful for. With gratitude, part of a daily routine, we can consider turning our thankful hearts to the things we wouldn't normally think of first when we think of gratitude. For example, I'm actually gra grateful that I endured depression. It brought me to the opportunity to write this book. And I will be grateful for every person who finds new tools in this book to find, to fight depression and find freedom. Here's another example. In Corey Ten Boom's autobiography, The Hiding Place, she tells how her sister Betsy reminded her to be grateful for in everything, emphasizing everything. 
While they were imprisoned in Great in Ravensbrück in Germany during World War II, Corey complained silently. What was her sister talking about? So on another day, Betsy was knitting socks with a large group of prisoners while she, when she noticed that the SS guards, the Nazi guards, were not entering the room or harassing them. She figured out later that it was because of the fleas that those SS officers refused to enter the room. She was then grateful for the fleas rather than in the circumstance of having to live with the fleas. Be thankful in everything. If we really want to see gratitude flourish in a big way, we can write down our gratitude list on a poster board with sticky notes. When we fill up the poster with notes, we will have a real and graphic way of seeing just how grateful we are. Once I gained freedom from depression, I became even more grateful. That healing did not come by depression leaving. It came by joy replacing it, because joy is not the opposite of depression. Joy makes depression leave as light disperses darkness. Joy is also not a greater happiness. It's a new state of being. When my gratitude fully became my daily habit in life, it was as though my subconscious mind wrote down joy and put it in an envelope of gratitude to, look, to deliver to me. Now this may seem obvious, but we need to be thankful for everything we have. Furthermore, I also found that when I am grateful, not only for everything, but in everything, I eventually became thankful for a lot more. It empowered my joy so abundantly that I have become grateful all the time for everything. Pray often. It is not as much about praying for the things we need as much as it is, as it is about praying for others or to bless them. If we're anything like I was, we think that we should only pray when we need something or only for ourselves. It's more than that. The big picture is both about us and those around us. In a bigger picture, I wrote this book because I prayed about others and what to do. When we pray about others and their needs, large blessings come our way. The best way to explain this is an analogy of extremes. When everyone looks out by praying for others, then we take care of each other as well as ourselves. However, when the prayers uttered are said only for the self, complete anarchy and chaos is near. When you and I pray for our own needs, we merely survive. When we pray for others, we have significance and people looked up to us. I pray all the time and for everything. I pray for every encounter I have with someone I meet. Before and after. I pray for a house or a building before I enter it. It's more than praying, 
to bless food before I eat. Praying for others is also about loving our neighbors, even the unlovable. And for me, it's especially about the unlovable. While I was stuck in depression, I used to ask myself, how can I pray for others while I still suffer? I look back on that now and think, how could I have been so selfish? The prayers I could have said back then would have drawn me out of depression, which had its roots in self-absorption and selfishness. The best thing about prayer is that it adds fuel and power to our gratitude and joy. Always rejoice. The Oxford English Dictionary defines joy rejoice as feel and show great joy or delight. Rejoice is a verb, which is why I say that joy displaces depression. Joy is an essential part of life because it empowers us to endure the life's struggles. With it, we have confidence instead of anxiety. I believe we can all agree that rejoicing is preferable to remaining in depression. Putting on a face for the crowd is far from what we should do, but many do it. However, in the privacy of our homes, we can act for ourselves that we, do, that we have joy in our lives. We should begin to feel like we do eventually. We can fake it until we make it and enjoy life as we go along. Before I started doing these things, I doubted that they would help me at all. I had to push myself to try it and not just a little at a time. Gratitude had a profound effect on me as I found out that I am grateful for everything rather than merely in everything. May God bless you and thank you for letting me share this with you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Bright Headed Publishing Audiobook Book Club. We just finished up with author Stephen D. Edwards. You can get his book, The Branch and the Vine, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. If you are an author or someone who supports authors, like a graphic designer or editor, we would love to have you on the podcast. You can email us at brightheadedpublishing.com at gmail.com. Again, that's brightheadedpublishing at gmail.com. I have been your host, Kelly Morgan, and until next time, keep writing.